Starting today, the Buddhist Geeks Dojo, our Sangha in the Cloud, is open for training. Dojo literally means the place of the way or the place of awakening. You can think of the Buddhist Geeks Dojo as a training ground for the heart and mind, a place where you can put into practice with others those things that support the flourishing of mindful awareness, of compassion, of wisdom. And this isn't just about us, because we're nodes in the network of consciousness. We are the network. Our awakening is tied to the awakening of all things. So what the dojo really is, is your life. Your life is the place of the way. In the Buddhist Geeks Dojo, we simply train to realize this more deeply, more fully, more intimately. BuddhistGeeks.com slash dojo Buddhist Geeks Exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn. And I'm joined this morning over Skype, having a conversation with uh, a good friend, a Dharma colleague, and someone that we've had on the show before. I'm here today with Jay Michelson. Um, Jake, thanks again for uh, taking the time to to chat with the geeks again. Totally. Love doing it. And I was just looking over your book list, and I saw that not only are you a geek, you're also a Zeke. What is a Zeke? <laughs> <laughs> I started a... Uh... Uh, an online magazine back when that was a cool thing to do in 2000. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we called it Zeke with, with two E's. What is the, when, what does the Z re- refer to? Well, it was a combination of um, Ezekiel, the, you know, the prophet poet and being a geek. So uh, nice. that's, that's kind of what we were going for. Nice. So this was like, this is like the Jewish geeks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess that's right. Yeah, the Zeeks. We actually, I, for a while, I was naming all of my projects after the kids that I wasn't having, and I always thought Zeke was a cool name for a child, so instead I named my magazine Zeke. <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, uh, that gives a sense of a little bit of sense of your background for those who don't, who don't know about your work. You're um, a Jew- Jewish teacher and scholar, um, also uh, deep practice and teaching also in the Dharma world, and you've written a lot uh, on the intersection of the LBGT community and um, God versus Gay, The Religious Case for Equality is a book that, that you wrote um, in 2012. Um, so you're so really kind of covering multiple intersection points with the contemplative, the secular, um, uh, really all over the place. And, and that's why it's so fun to, to chat with you because that's kind of you know, what, what we're aspiring to with Buddhist Geeks is to kind of explore some of these different convergence points. Um, and I wanted to mention, Thanks. yeah, and I, I wanted to mention the, the most recent work you've done. Uh, last time we had you on the show a couple of years ago, we talked about, uh, your last book, Evolving Dharma. And that was really kind of a look at some of the characters and figures, uh, and teachings and ideas emerging from, um, what you call the next generation of enlightenment. Um, uh, which which ended up covering a lot of the same folks that we've talked talked to here on Buddhist Geeks. You know, there's a lot of overlap and convergence there. Um, and then your most recent book is a bit of a shift in direction, actually, from from your past books. We were talking about this 
a couple weeks ago. And, and this is kind of in some sense uh, like your first uh, like Dharma book. I put it in quotes in my, in my hands. Uh, the Gate of Tears, Sadness and the Spiritual Path. And, and I say Dharma book in the sense that like it's really, uh, it's really pointing toward some, some important ideas and teachings that really support practitioners in, in working with um, you know, as in particular working with sadness and grief and loss, um, as it relates to the contemplative path. Um, and so it, is it, is it accurate to say this is kind of a unique, um, book for you in, in that it's more geared toward practitioners? It, it is. I think, um, yeah, a couple of pieces come out. I mean, the first is that integration one that you mentioned before. I think, you know, there we're really, a, the, the people who I know in Buddhist geeks and communities like it, I think we're still at an early stage of having Dharma books that aren't cheesy um, and that do speak to a contemporary sensibility, but also, you know, aren't taking the easy way out uh, and not confronting some of the difficult emotional and spiritually stuff that comes up. And uh, so I really had an ambition with this book to write a Dharma, a Dharma book for people who usually read but still find Dharma books to be a little corny mm -hmm. um, and see if I could do that. And uh, it was very much a personal kind of an effort for me. You know, one piece of my bio that, you know, I, I write in the for the Daily Beast and in stuff in the sort of, you know, the hard edge journalism world. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write a, a, a Dharma book that I felt integrity around both on the sort of contemplative side and also on the cultural side. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, cool. And and this is it's an interesting topic, I think, because there's a shit ton of books out there on happiness, right? <laughs> um, but I've seen maybe very very few or even none on sadness. Um, so I really I really liked that you're you're kind of going directly at something that you know I think a lot of people maybe even don't consider that to be part of the spiritual path in some way. It's because it's like if you're not happy, you're not getting it. If you're sad, that's right. the opposite of happiness. So you really must not be getting it. What's, yeah. what's, yeah. what's your sense of that? Well, that's definitely right, and that's that's really why I, I wrote the book. I, the book had a, an unusual genesis. I wrote a first draft of it 10 years ago when I was much earlier on in my practice, and it had that enthusiasm of someone just starting out. Um, and then, you know, about two years ago, my mother uh, became quite ill. She actually passed away last January, and I returned to these teachings that were in the book and basically rewrote the book and then rewrote it again. Um you know, with sort of the benefit of experience, it benefits the right word. Mm. Um, and it, it really did come out of that sense of, God, you know, the, why you're not doing it wrong if you still feel sadness, you're doing it right. And there is a kind of happiness. Ultimately, you know, happiness sells better. So I've learned how to pitch my book, up tell, telling people it's actually about happiness. Uh, there is a kind of happiness that arises from practice, right? The happiness that doesn't depend on conditions. But that's really different. Uh, from, you know, happy, joy, joy, you can create your own reality and just the power of positive thinking stuff. Um, having said all of that and agreeing with your, you know, sense that there's a lot of books on happiness and none on sadness, then the movie Inside Out came out, you know, as, it, as the book was going to press and, you know, sadness is like the hero of that, of that movie. So I kind of got scooped by Pixar a little bit, <laughs> but until that happened, yeah, no, there's this there is this sense that I think you get that um, and it turns a lot of people off from contemplative practice that the point is to be one of those like 
always happy, doe-eyed, annoying people who, you know, you meet at some party that you wish you never went to. And that is both dispiriting for people who actually do the practice. And it's also just not, it's definitely not what it's about, at least in my experience. Mm. So, um, but before, before we switch gears and talk a little bit about the implications of this, um, I was curious if you could maybe share a little bit about like some of the core, um, core teachings, I guess, or the core pointers that, that you, that really stand out for you after having written, rewritten, gone through everything that you've been going through with, with your mom passing away? Um, like what are the things that stand out to you as being like the most important for understanding sadness or working with sadness uh, on the past? Yeah, you know, I think it, it, it was an interesting thing because for me, the core teaching of the book is actually a really straightforward, basic, fundamental Dharma teaching that's actually really hard to communicate. And, you know, I wrote the book, as you know, it has like 85 very short chapters, you know, one or two page mini chapters most of the time. And I did that because I just wanted to make the same point in different directions. So a lot of the chapters do it from a sort of secular pop culture perspective. Some do it from a Buddhist perspective. There are a few that also do it from a Jewish perspective. And the, the core point is is basically that it's possible to coexist with emotions while feeling them but not being swept away by them. And that is kind of Dharma 101, right? But I found, you know, when I kind of when I discovered that and I wasn't my discovery, but when I discovered it about myself in practice, you know, 10 12 years ago, that it was this incredible revelation actually and and yet it is kind of subtle like i've i've tried you know in my own teaching cuz now i i teach um jhana practice with uh, lee brazington he's he's uh authorized me to teach in his lineage which is awesome and i teach uh i teach meditation in a couple of different contexts you know there is this process with students of of getting that fundamental point that there can be a mental spaciousness that can include uh, happiness, joy, elation, ecstasy, sadness, pain, anger, um, and you can kind of see the clouds passing by, but I but uh, hang out more with being the sky rather than the storm. So, you know, there are all these metaphors. Right? I just used two of them. Mental spaciousness is itself a metaphor of a psychological experience, mm-hmm. um, and also the the sky and the clouds. And we have these ways of speaking indirectly about just coexisting being with allowing whatever emotions are coming along, not, not feeling them. You do feel them, but you notice that you feel them. And it's that very subtle difference between I'm sad and I'm feeling sadness that actually I think is like the key to the whole Dharma. I really do. It's this, this, uh, what Dan Harris calls the, you know, the Buddhist superpower that, you know, you can feel anger or, or irritation or anxiety or fear arising and just sort of notice it. And just by noticing it, you're not swept away by it as much. Okay. So um, it, it's interesting. When I, when I was chatting with you about this a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about um, this conversation today that I, I realized um, for myself also that, that that realization, that sadness was part of the path and that couldn't be avoided I fortunately came early on and it came by doing a retreat at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. And it came because um, because there were people around me on the retreat. And I think anyone who's done a retreat 
knows this experience, uh, especially if it's at least a week or longer, um, where people around you and yourself uh, at some point or another um, have these cathartic moments, you know, these moments where you're sitting with pain, you're sitting with boredom, you're sitting with whatever. And then at some point, you know, what you're sitting with becomes overwhelming grief and sadness. And it's just part of what rolls through um, the mind and it rolls through experience and there's no way to really avoid it. And I think even Ajahn Chah uh, was quoted to have said something like, if you haven't really sat down in the hall and, and, and cried deeply, you haven't really started your path. Um, and I thought that was very interesting. I'm sure you've, you've experienced many moments like that as well, really seeing other people who are opening to their experience begin to, begin to open to sadness. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty moving. It's pretty touching. Yeah, it's really powerful. And I, although I have to say the first time it happened on my very, very first retreat uh, many years ago, I was filled with judgment. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, well, this guy, this person's pathetic. You know? Yeah. And, uh, I'm not going to be one of those, you know, one of those like baby boomer spirituality people crying into, you know, their handkerchief or something. You know, it, it took another two or three days, and then I did become one of those. Which, uh, <laughs> two or three days, nice. Yeah, well, you know, I had a lot of judgment about those people. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, you were really holding and, on. And, <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm definitely not that. I'm definitely not that. I am that. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's you know, that's the the gateway. And obviously, you know, I, I sort of want to rush in to say, you know, it's also not about wallowing in sadness, right? We're not just we're not trying to be, you know, miserable all the time, or or you know, we're not trying to just you know, get deeper into the stuff, actually getting deeper into the stuff and wallowing in it in, in a, in a strange way is, is a kind of avoidance mechanism, right? Mm. So it's like, well, if I, if I turn this thing over a million more times, then it'll go away. Uh, as opposed to just allowing, so here's, yeah, here's this grief that comes up around loss or it doesn't even have to be major grief and major loss. It could just be the blues, you know, it's getting darker out or colder out and I'm feeling sad. I'm feeling lonely today, even though, you know, I might have a partner or something. I'm, you know, today I'm feeling lonely for some reason and just allowing these things to come and go, you know, that's one of the major, right. The major insights is seeing how these things arise and pass. Um, and, you know, seeing that there is suffering attached to them, right. That's a second major insight that there's a, there is this suffering that comes along, uh, and, and that it just arises. It's not you, it's just, here's this mind state that comes up. So all of the, the key kind of insights of, of the Dharma are right there. You know, and I, I remember actually another IMS teacher, right. Joseph Goldstein, said that in life, almost all of the suffering we experience is basically knee pain, which I thought was a little flip. We meant, you know, the pain you feel feeling medita in meditation. But then I, I learned he actually suffers for excruciating knee pain um, mm. when he sits. So I, I appreciated that more. But I, his point is that, you know, when knee pain arises or back pain or something physical arises in a sit, you know, there here we are again, right back at square one. Right. So we want to avoid the unpleasant. So, you know, there's an instinct which every animal has to move right, and to, to, to get away from the unpleasant. But we can't continue. You can't always get what you want. You can't just always move away from the pain. Um, and in fact, in real life, the moving away from the pain causes more pain. Uh, it can be much more liberating and lead to a really profound happiness to just allow this thing to happen. And here's what it feels like. And it's maybe not pleasant. You know, it, do it does, maybe it gets worse, maybe it gets better. It does what it does. And that attitude, 
of the the witnessing attitude, I just I think it really is crucial. I mean, it comes in every day. It comes in when you know there's a desire to send an angry email, and I either do or don't send it. Even if I fail and I do send it, it comes. You know, that's the insight that arises. Um, and so, it, it in both matters that are profound and things that are really trivial. Uh, this core insight that it's is is something that for me makes a difference every day. It's it's interesting as you're describing that I was and especially the point about you know all of the dharma is contained in some way by looking at this you know it's sort of a the fractal like nature of of dharma and and how and how sadness reflects something deeply profound um, I was thinking about Chekyam Trungpa's phrase that he often used in des, in describing this the the tender heart of sadness. And um, I thought that was a beautiful phrase because it, it points to what also happens when people get good at doing what you're describing, right? Where they, they are able to open to sadness and feel it directly without wallowing or avoiding the experience. And they become more tender as a result. Like they become more open, more vulnerable, more tenderized by that experience and it and, and it gradually slowly i mean i'd say slowly from my experience slowly changes uh people it seems like and that, and that's one of the cool things about about this practice is it really does uh over time um ha- have some discernible effect on how we are yeah i, I experienced that too you know I, it just occurred to me last night um i met someone for a drink uh, kind of an acquaintance, but someone that, uh, you know, I just had a drink with. And I thought he said at one point, um, you know, uh, he said to me, I'm not that good at making friends. And I got a little weird in the moment because <laughs> I, I maybe shouldn't have said this because it was a little too Dharma touchy feely to just sort of spring on someone in, in a, over a drink. <laughs> I said, well, you know, that's how you do it, right? You just did it. Right. Just by opening up and being honest and showing like, here's this person who's willing to say something, you know, it's not like a huge thing, but it was like, that's a thing to say. Like, oh, yeah, I, I could really empathize with that. And that just his his willingness to be open about this this difficult thing that he's having trouble making friends made me feel made it opened my heart a little bit. Right. Because he opened his to, to just say that. So it, it doesn't even have to be something big and profound, just the willingness to stop being fake. Um, and I think, you know, I think it is something that, you know, we struggle with a lot of us in the, in the workplace, for example, where, you know, obviously I, I don't want to know about everybody's sadness all the time, mm-hmm. right? I, it, it's important that to have those boundaries around, you know, but sometimes there's this sense that we have to pretend like, um, we're doing everything great at the office or if we're in the sort of the Dharma world, uh, that everything's always getting better. And, you yeah. know, the best that, and, and that, that, that pushes us away, I think, from other people. You know, like everybody's having an awesome time, but me, I must be really messed up. Like I must be doing something wrong. But, um, but right, that actually being sort of authentic around whatever's coming up without being a, you know, a, an annoying person at the, at the party who, again, unloads on you, but just being authentic actually connects us to other people and to ourselves. It just feels better. And that's, that's what, you know, is the paradox I think of, of this book of the gate of tears is that I, I I'm into sadness because it actually feels better to feel sad than to pretend to feel happy. Um, so actually it's a kind of happiness. It's, it's actually a kind of hedonism almost to just feel honest and to just be truthful 
And it just feels so much more relaxing to not have to like pretend as though, oh, I've got the mindful answer to everything. And here's the pithy mindfulness quote. I mean, I can do that. Yeah, you can do that. We can sit and give people mindfulness quotes, you know, to make them supposedly feel better. But that's just bullshit, right? That's not that's not authentic teaching. Like that's and it's not authentic learning or being in the world. So it just feels so much more free um, to just be truthful and just like you said, the the heart grows more tender and more connected to others. Yeah, yeah. As you're describing that, I, I was thinking about the result of that feeling of of sharing our our humanity and sharing that with others like oh yeah i i'm not perfect uh i i i'm not crushing it all the time i'm not killing it all the time <laughs> in fact very some rarely some, some of the, the time, time you are some of the time it's true but those are those are also those are also uh you know from that dharmic perspective that you're describing those times where i'm killing it you know they they also come in waves and come as as phases, they don't stick stick around, and it's not always the case. Um, so they they can also be felt without wallowing or, you know, without holding on. And um, although you know that that's a, like a whole nother book, probably. <laughs> <laughs> how to how to be awesome without being a dick? I think that'll be the, that'll be the next. One. I was thinking maybe the gate of crushing it would <laughs> be another. <laughs> If you want to stick with the gate metaphor. Yeah. Although, you know, it's fun. It's funny. So this book just came out, you know, a few weeks ago. It's new and it's out there. And they're just on the point you just made. I've had so many moments where I've been grateful that I wrote this book about being imperfect and and, Mm. and sometimes really messing up. Um, You know, there's sad stuff that happens in, in life. And there's just and then there's times where I mess up, you know, and um it just it it feels so good that I didn't write a book about how to be happy all the time because <laughs> like that's way too much pressure. Oh yeah. Um, and and so you know when stuff happens, there's been some tough things you know in politics and in my personal life, whatever. It's like, wow. Well, I'm really glad I wrote the book, The Gate of Tears, because it just feels like yeah, that's the that's the Dharma that I want to be associated with. Mm-hmm. Um, which is you know like another one of the sort of cheesy metaphors is um, you know you can't straighten out the waves in the ocean, but you can learn how to surf, right? Yeah, there's like highs that are awesome, and there's lows that are not awesome. Um, and it just feels so much more authentic to our shared experience to not pretend like, oh, getting the answer means now I'm just doe-eyed and happy. I, I don't even like those people. <laughs> yeah, it, ma- it makes sense. There's, there's, um, you know, and this is part of what I've loved about the, um, you know, there's different terms. You know, you you wrote about it directly in in your uh, book, Evolving Dharma, but. Um, you know, a lot of people call it the pragmatic Dharma movement. Um, you know, this kind of, uh, I guess it's a response in some ways to the boomer, some of the boomer Buddhist culture and spiritual and the new age spiritual culture, you know, around, around what you're describing, being doe-eyed all the time and happy. And, you know, it's, it's not that, it's not that all boomers think that. And certainly the teachers I've worked with have a, have a more nuanced view. Um, that's much more like what we're describing. And I'd say they also probably agree with you that they don't really like those people, um, you know. But they, but they also those are the people that they work with and they teach oftentimes. And so uh, I lo- I loved about the pragmatic Dharma movement that it's explicitly said, you know, hey, uh, Dharma is not about this fluffy endeavor about being, you know, happy all the time or or um, uh, or being some sort of perfect person. Rather, it's about developing certain capacities or skills and 
Um, often enlightenment or awakening is considered, you know, central aim there. And at the same time, and this is one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because you're in that world, you're also in other worlds. Um, the one thing about the pragmatic Dharma movement that I've noticed can become problematic, not the one thing, one of the things, is that because there's so much of a focus on some of the hard skills of meditation, like you know, doing jhana practice or doing, you know, um, powerful insight meditation or mahamudra meditation and really penetrating to that deep sense of unqualifiable, you know, emptiness, um, that, that the human emotional side um, can be seen primarily as a bunch of sensations to dissect or to see the impermanence of rather than something that really touches us or moves us or that, you know, that connects us with our emotional lives more deeply. And I, I've wondered if that's one of the kind of the downsides of, of that response or that reaction to the, to the kind of the boomer spirituality. Um, curious what you think. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really interesting point, and I'm, I'm glad kind of that you made it because of you know where you are in the, in the Dharma world. You know, I think I like the metaphor of of hacking, which you and I have both used in our work. You know, we're either hacking the brain or hacking the Dharma or whatever. You know, there is a, there is sort of a downside to that metaphor, right? Obviously, it's an it's an image, it's a metaphor, and and a way of approaching things. It's not it's not an actual thing, you know. And I think that's right. The downside is it's not just about doing this sort of um, left brain work and and crunching crunching the perceptions and and doing all of that really important insight work. It is that. Um, but yeah, there are other levels as well. And I think um, as the pragmatic Dharma movement matures a little bit, you know, be thinking about what that what that looks like and maybe even adding in modalities from outside the Dharma. But yeah, you know, but then look, if you look straight back in, in the actual teachings, fortunately, you know, if you go back, whether it's to the Pali Canon or to, to other uh, to other collections of, of Buddhist teachings, you know, working skillfully with emotions is, is always there, right? And it's and it's not just um, doing the hacking work. It's also uh, improving the paramis, for example, you know, working on the sort of uh, ethical conduct uh, virtues, basically, or developing loving kindness. You know, the, the Buddha was all was both, uh, you know, very, at least the way he's depicted in the text, a very wise guy, but also somebody who's, who was very compassionate and who actually uh, cared and cared about people and could empathize and could open his own heart. Um, so I think that's that's actually a really important point to think about. And it's true. I think we are in a sort of reaction against an over-psychoanalyzation in some circles uh, of the Dharma. And and I think that's a healthy reaction. Right? I think we're rebalancing it. But hopefully, right, we don't go too far in the opposite direction um, and just think that this is only um, brain hacking. And I, I've met, you know, we, we've both met folks who have gone through that kind of process. And when it's, when it's purely uh, intellectual, even if some of these attainments are hit, it can be, it can be unsatisfying. And I think it's, it's building that out and, um, and really remembering that there's a body here as well. Mm -hmm. And there's a heart, mm -hmm. you know, as well as a mind. Yeah. Um, and these are all pieces that have to be included in the practice. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm glad you mentioned compassion, um, because I was just thinking about how with the Mahayana movement, compassion was you know, elevated to the level of wisdom and um, curious to hear your thoughts on the relationship between sadness and compassion or if that's something that you go into um, with the book. So, yeah, I mean, for me, the for, for almost 15 years, 
Uh, my biggest question kind of in the Dharma, which remains unanswered, is, you know, does this thing work to make people kinder? Um, so I always think about Dick Cheney as my example of an unkind person, because <laughs> here's someone, Dick Cheney's, you know, his his recent Playboy interview, uh, I think is essential reading for any Dharma practitioner, because it reveals him to be a really happy guy. He's actually pretty happy. He thinks he's morally good. He thinks he's done the right thing. Um, you know, from where I sit politically, and I have a hunch most of our, our listeners probably sit, we might have a different opinion about whether he's been a moral actor in or, or whether he's actually in some kind of delusion. So for me, this is like the open question is, does doing a sort of introspective contemplative meditation practice actually get in the gears and make us better um, in terms of social justice and in terms of just everyday kindness? So both individually and collectively, which I would say is politically, does it actually work? You know, and which pieces work? I think the jury is still out. Of course, there's been studies and, you know, pro-social behavior improves with Dharma practice and so on. Um, but uh, I, that's been my biggest open question, because if it doesn't actually help us be not just nicer to the other privileged people in our lives, but also radically empathetic and compassionate to people who are different from us, Right. So how do I be how can I be a good white ally to the Black Lives Matter movement? Right. How can I really listen to people's experiences when they're not shared experiences? You know, I grew up a white privileged kid in, in Florida um, with all kinds of racist stuff in my own background. You know, how do I actually do the work to listen and then find a way to also have that space where there's some righteous indignation, but it's not making me an angry and a bitter person. So that you know, that's my big question. I'm still waiting for that data <laughs> to show, you know, I really want to get, I want to get a cohort of, you know, 25 Republicans in a room, you know, and see if, see if they shift judging by how many, you know, there's good libertarians and bad libertarians judging by the, the <laughs> fact that the, the good libertarians that I know who do Dharma practice seem to be good libertarians. The bad libertarians I know seem not to do practice. So that reinforces my opinion. So therefore it must be right. But I, I think <laughs> that's, uh, you know, that's the real the real question is um, how does this not become, uh, you know, our flavor of narcissism? So it might not look like boomer narcissism, right, because we're not burning as much incense, but it's still bullshit if we're not actually um, engaged on some level in in uh, lessening suffering in the world. Gotcha. Yeah. And it's so, it's so interesting because there's been a, a recent wave of people asking, I think, the same question and, and criticisms leveled toward the meditation community and the Buddhist community um, that, in fact, um, it's not the case that people actually uh, become more open to this uh, social uh, suffering and responsive to it. And, and go ahead. Yeah, I think, you know what, I, I was going to jump in because I, I feel like what's there's an opportunity in, in spaces like Buddhist Geeks to almost ask a more interesting question than the one that gets asked a lot. So mm -hmm. it seems like every other day there's some article. The New York Times just ran another article bashing meditation as mm -hmm, being, mm -hmm. you know, stupid and corporate and stuff. So we could all just stipulate that there are forms of corporate mindfulness that are stupid, that we hate, and that we don't like. Okay, why, let's get that out of the way. Like, uh, I don't need to read any more New York Times articles on that uninteresting <laughs> question. <laughs> what I'm much more interested in is in emerging communities, and I count Buddhist Geeks as one of those, 
you know, how, okay, so how do we do it better? You know, what does it look like to just make sure, you know, so I teach in the, a little bit sometimes in Dharma punks communities, you know, and there, because there's this kind of shared social ethos, you know, what I put in my Dharma talks is a little bit different, right? It'll just include a little bit more political consciousness, just like in this interview, I didn't have to, you know, bring it up. I brought up Black Lives Matter, you opened the door with your question, and then I walked through it in a particular way. So, you know, I think there's, it's a really to me, more much more interesting question to sit to say. All right, there's some bad stuff out there. So, what does it look like? You know, what does it look like to just be serious about our compassion practice? Yeah. You know, so you know there is Zen place Zen centers, for example, that are just entirely you know zazen focused, and that's it. Okay. Well, that's one model. Then there is Zen fo- centers which are very focused on on meditation practice, intensive meditation practice, but also have an intensive social justice practice. Sure. Um, and that's like understood that that's part, you know, like if you're not doing that piece, you're, you're kind of, you're doing it wrong. And I think that's kind of a, an, an interesting question uh, to think about in emerging Dharma communities, how it gets integrated in a way that's not just like PC, right? So, okay, good. We've, you know, let, that's important. The PC part is actually important to make communities inclusive, but not just that, right? So what does a commitment look like uh, to doing justice work or just developing our own compassion muscles? And, um, you know, I think, look, Matthew, Matthew Ricard's new book, Altruism, you know, all thousand pages of it. I was going to say, uh, it's a doorstop. Which I haven't read every page you know i think that you know the, the the first big book was happiness and the second big book is altruism and i think that's really telling well good thing you skipped him on sadness um go <laughs> <laughs> so so i think you bring up um you bring up some really interesting directions and i and i think the the question is really uh, well put, you know, what, how, how do we in emerging communities deal with these, deal with the integration of, of the contemplative and the social, um, in a real way. And, um, it, it makes me think back in some ways to the early Buddhist teachings and, and the way that, you know, the, the notion of social justice wasn't like it is now in ancient India. I think reading this text, you can just see that it's not the same, uh, environment, um, the compassion, you know, and loving kindness were often described as, you know, states to develop and cultivate. Yes, because they have ethical benefit, but also because it affects, you know, your rebirth. And if you're able to access these, these states, which aren't just states, they're also realms, they actually exist externally, um, then you can actually direct your consciousness to be reborn in those realms. Um, so it is interesting that in some ways we're having to reinterpret also the Dharma to reflect those, that question. Um, yeah. And and I, I think that's, you know, I think to me, what the, the sort of geek slash hacker attitude to the Dharma is, you know, a very historically aware approach, like you just said, you know, it's not to whitewash and cherry pick out the good pieces. Um, incidentally, by the way, having, since I now teach jhana, if that turns out to be true, and after this death, I can direct my consciousness to abode, you know, be in the realm of infinite space, or in, you know, I'm in. So I feel like, all worst case scenario, I've covered the bases. Like that would be great. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so that's, that's 
check mark. Yeah, I've done that just in case those guys were right. But you know, look, yeah, there are some teachings that are that are encouraging. You know, the way the Buddha re related to caste and also to gender. You know, being a, a little bit transgressive of some of the norms at, at his time. Um, but absolutely, there's no question we're in a different kind of social context. We have a different political system, one that empowers us much more, at least for the for the moment, until the Cokes give Marco Rubio one billion dollars. But for the moment, we're a little bit more empowered to to change the social conditions of our of our life the way that uh, folks in you know sixth century BC uh, India were not and so that change in in social context I think does call for for some adaptation of the Dharma um, so finding the pieces that are of use that are of pragmatic use and just being truthful and honest about the fact that yeah we're also informed by Western humanism um, and and a lot of other streams that come in. Uh, and impact how we apply the Dharma uh, kind of in our own lives. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm glad, too, you mentioned the uh, corporate mindfulness because, like you, I'm, I'm sort of, I, I also just have stopped reading <laughs> the articles that, that are bashing it. And, and not because there, like you say, there isn't some value in, in that critique. But what's more interesting to me, and I think you're pointing to this uh, with your question, is, you know, wh what is it about the the corporate mindfulness movement and really mindfulness and and everything that's so interesting and I think what it is is that it uh, it breaks down the barrier of application of these methods with other areas of life that are often um, siloed away when we practice it uh, as quote unquote Dharma you know here's our spiritual life and there's our work life and you know th that 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 kind of siloing was really common in the 20th century, you know, for people to feel that. And, and now the silos, it seems like are breaking down and have broken down to a large degree. So then the question is, how do these things actually interplay? And at least the corporate mindfulness movement isn't scared to break down that silo. That's one thing I would say, <laughs> whereas the Dharma a, world yeah. has, has been more uh, uh, reticent to do that. Yeah, that's a you know that's a really interesting point. You know, what can we learn from corporate mindfulness? Right, it is an integrated system. I don't know system's probably the wrong word, but it, it's an integrated practice uh, in that it it is trying to you know here's how to integrate your work life and your and your practice. Which not to you know say something nice about you, but that's also it's part of how I understand the life retreat model. That like you know okay you're you're in your life. Um, you know you may be able to also go take time out and do intensive retreat and and that's of you know very high value but also all right well how do we make our life our practice and how do we make our practice our life and and that you know that does circle back to where i am kind of in the book i, I think one of my teachers uh lama suryadas from the tibetan tradition has taught me a lot about um still being you you know when you're doing the doing practice so still liking still going out for the drink or still you know going to the movie or still going to whatever you know it's still you know, engaging in a sort of in the world, uh, and this is kind of the tantric turn, the real tantra, not the fake one, uh, mm -hmm. in uh, in the Dharma that came with primarily with the, the Tibetan uh, traditions, um, that you could make. Uh, that you could surf the waves and not try to even out the ocean in your in your daily life, and that could be the place where practice happens. Um, that's actually a lot harder, I think, than than going on retreat. There's sometimes a sense that we have as Westerners, like, oh, that should be easier because I get to still be in my life and have my cake and eat it too. Um, but it's harder because we all get stuck. Right? We get stuck a lot. Um, 
but I have found over, you know, over the years of practice that there is a, a happiness that does arise that I have access to. And that when I do get stuck, if I'm able to be on my game, the stuckness can pass very, very quickly, you know, in a, in a matter of, of seconds, uh, maybe 30 seconds, not three, but, but that's, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm happy with that, uh, level of practice. So I get stuck in a, in a, some groove that's either anger based or anxiety or, or sadness or something like that. And you know, that there is that capacity of mind that builds, you know, kind of like a muscle or whatever that builds to, to recognize, Oh, here I am. Oh, I know this. Oh, here's this story. Oh, I'm in the sadness thing. All right. Yeah, that's all right. That's fine. Um, and the, that's fine piece of it that sadness and joy go together gets stronger. And sadness becomes, or, or any difficult emotion becomes, just kind of another, like, you know, I use the metaphor of music a lot in the book. You know, it's like, okay, well, here's this minor chord. And, all right, yeah, that's fine. And sadness and joy right, right in there. And, you know, some of the best, my favorite music has always been sad music because it's beautiful and it's awesome and I love it. It makes me happy. Um, and that piece for me of having, whether it's worldliness and contemplative practice together or sadness and joy together, those pieces have been really central to my own practice. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.